Well, thanks, and uh, good evening, everybody. You're about to uh, witness the amazing feat of somebody trying to preach with uh, four elastic bands in his mouth. So if I start dribbling or whatever, then you just have to look away or look down at the floor, you know, pretend not to notice. Uh, so there'll be no difference from normal then. Uh, let's just pray again, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word, even the obscure and difficult find bits like the book of the letter of Jude. Lord, we thank you that every single word, every single letter uh, within the Bible can speak to us, can teach us, can build us up in our faith. Lord, help us to listen to your Holy Spirit tonight as you speak to us through your word. Amen. So uh, let me make you an offer. Just down the road, uh, you'll find Christian churches that don't make demands on your lifestyle. They'll tell you all about God's love and acceptance. They'll tell you not to worry about evangelism because everybody's saved anyway. And they'll tell you that the most important thing is that we all love each other and get on well with each other as, and get along with other Christians. Why, why do you bother coming here? Where we do make like, demands on your lifestyle. We tell you about God's love, but we also tell you about God's judgment. We hope that you will tell your friends about Jesus so that some of them will be saved. We tell you about doctrine and beliefs and that they're very important. It's not just about getting along with each other. And sometimes you do have to actually defend your corner. Well, that's the question that Jude uh, seeks to answer here in his letter. Why bother contending for your faith? when actually a more liberal interpretation of Christian faith will apparently do just as well and is, and is obviously clearly much nicer. Well, let's have a look at this. Let's have a look at Jude's letter, sometimes uh, called Jude the Obscure, because uh, you don't often hear about it. Sermons aren't often preached on it. And it's dead difficult to find, as Martin pointed out in the Bible, with no numbers or anything else. And it's full of all that uh, apparently obscure and difficult to understand stuff as a kind of a taster for the book of Revelation that comes immediately after it. It's hardly the making of a nice, light Sunday evening sermon straight after the Wimbledon final, which we won't mention tonight at all, will we? There's a big cloud hanging over our, head, our household at the moment. So this is how we're going to approach the letter of Jude. We're going to talk about who Jude was, who he was writing to, what he wrote, why, and how we should go about it. So who, who to, what, why, and how. So who is this Jude? Well, we're not entirely sure is, uh, is the answer. We're not entirely sure of all the details. But verse 1 tells us that the letter was written by Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. Now, if he's a brother of James, then it's more than likely that he's the half-brother of Jesus himself, one of the younger sons of Mary and Joseph. But he doesn't make a big song and dance about that, does he? It's almost as though he's unworthy to claim any connection with Jesus Christ, other than that connection he mentions, which is as servant. He is servant to Jesus Christ our Lord, verses 4 and 25, existing in all ages, now and forevermore, he says. You see, Jesus was his human older brother, but he is also his pre-existing God. Quite amazing, isn't it? Jesus may have been his brother, but Jude has come to recognize him as something much more than that, as Lord, as God. You see, being a servant to Jesus has suddenly become an even greater privilege for Jude 
than simply being his brother. So Jude writes with authority, not because he's Jesus' brother, but because he's an apostle standing alongside those other apostles that he mentions in verses 17 and 18. And Jude's message here is very, very similar to to Peter's message in, in 2 Peter, if you have a look at that later. And that's why we shouldn't uh, ignore this, this small, obscure letter at the back end of the New Testament. So that's who Jude is. And his brother James uh, later went on to lead the church in Jerusalem after Peter. And he probably wrote the letter of James that we find in our Bibles. But who is Jude writing to? Well, the context, as we go through the letter, will tell us that he's probably writing to Christians in Palestinian churches. Some of the obscure things he mentions would have made perfect sense to first-century Palestinians. But verse 1 puts it much more nicely, much better. Verse 1 says, To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Notice that. Because if you're a Christian here tonight then that's what you are. This is your past, your present, and your future, all rolled into one phrase. You see, you were called in the past. You are loved by God now, here in the present. And you will be kept by Jesus Christ in the future, no matter what happens. Indeed, there's a famous uh, doxology or, or verses at the end, 24 and 25 say, he is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That is, our only God and Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord will do that. He will present you to himself without fault, with great joy. So we are called. We are loved by God. We are kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are kept and we are being prepared to be presented to God without fault, with great joy. It's just worth, isn't it? Just reflecting on those words, isn't it? The fact that we are called, we are loved, we are kept by Jesus. It gives us the context to the whole of this letter, which does get difficult to understand. That does get quite touchy and, and nasty sometimes, but that is the context of this letter. So that's Jude, and, and who is he writing to? But what's the letter about? Well, you can see that in verse 3. It says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all and trusted to the saints. So do you say he's actually writing not what he originally intended to write about? He intended to write about initially at the salvation we share. He wanted this letter to be a letter of celebration about salvation. He wanted to say something along the lines of people. We have been saved by grace, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We've done nothing to deserve our salvation. We haven't earned it with our good works. We haven't bought it with our sacrifices. God sent Jesus to save us from future judgment and give us eternal life whilst we were still lost and dead in our sins. And do you know what more? The whole community is going to share in that salvation. <coughs> Hallelujah, what a saviour we have. That's the sort of letter that he wanted to write. But what he found he had to write was a letter urging you to contend for the faith that was once for entrusted to the saints. 
So the actual what of this letter, or command of this letter, is to contend, or even stronger, to fight for the faith. So you see, the Queen isn't the only defender of the faith in this country. If you're a Christian here, then Jude urges you not only to be a defender of the faith, but to be a contender for the faith, a fighter for the faith, involved in the thick of the battle. And what a battle it is, because unlike Prince Charles, we do not, we cannot be a defender of faith or the faiths. We must contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Entrusted by whom? By God himself. You see, this is God's faith. It is the most holy faith, verse 20. You see, in the Old Testament, anything which belonged to God, to the holy God, was automatically holy also. And the punishment for stealing it or maltreating it was the death penalty, usually by God's own hands. So in Joshua 7, you had Achan, who who stole from God and was zapped. Or, or when the instructions for moving the ark in 1 Chronicles 13 and 15 were ignored, again, the people were zapped from above. So can we pick and choose the elements of faith we want? And well, no. Can we say that all faiths are equal and lead to the same place? No. Can the church change the faith according to what its leaders see fit? No. Should we change the faith because elements of society find our faith to be unacceptable in modern times? No. You see, we contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted as a precious jewel or your life savings entrusted to the saints. That's us. Everyone has put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And why is that so important? Well, because our theology or our understanding of this faith is the very basis for the salvation that we share, the thing that Jude wanted to talk about. So what was happening in the churches which caused this change of tack in Jude's letter and his urging to contend for the faith? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that the uh, problem again is false teachers. It's a common enough theme in New Testament letters, particularly Paul's New Testament letters. So what were these false teachers uh, teaching? Well, let's, let's look at two things, their deception and their destiny. So firstly, they pretended to be one thing when they were really another So verse 4, these false teachers, they secretly slipped in among you. And verse 11, they set out to deceive people as Cain does in Genesis 4 when he invites his brother Abel out to have a nice walk in the field and then attacks him and murders him. And Balaam does in Numbers 22. But also in in verse 11, uh, we see that these false teachers set themselves up against God's chosen authority. In this case, the authority of the teaching of the apostles. Just as Korah did in Numbers 16, when he set himself up against God's chosen authority then, who was Moses, and led a rebellion against Moses. You see, they were rejecting authority, verse 8. And it led to a change in their theology. Verse verse 4 says, They changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So do you see that? I know we're jumping around the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the book here. But do you see that? What they've done is reject legitimate Christian liberty, that is the absolute freedom from law and legalism, and the power to live lives as Jesus wants us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, the liberty of the Holy Spirit. They've exchanged that liberty 
and they've chosen license, which is something completely different. They've chosen license for immorality, verse 4, and license to follow their evil desires, verse 16. And so it is today. You see, the underlying reason why, why people find the teaching of the Bible so hard to accept, so hard, is not because they don't see its authenticity or its power to change people's lives. More likely than not, they do. But simply because they're actually looking for a license for immorality. Of course, they wouldn't call it that. But they change their theology subtly rather than change their behavior. So instead of the Bible... Their authority may be based on dreams, as it is in verse 8 here, or their own understanding in verse 10, or on their own boastful ideas and on flattery, verse 16, or on mere natural instincts, verse 19. Does any of that sound familiar? You see, that was their deception. But let's look at their destiny. You see, these people were of the church, they were members of the church, and yet they do not have the spirit, Jude says in verse 19. Therefore, he says they are destined for eternal fire, verse 7, blackest darkness, verse 13, judgment, verses 15. Instead of being called, loved by God and kept by Jesus, they are, verse 4, condemned, godless, without God. And they deny Jesus Christ as their sovereign Lord. So Jude is writing to us, isn't he, as Christians, called, loved, and kept by Jesus. So what must we do? Contend for the faith. Why? Because of the deception and the destiny of many people, even we may find in the church today. So finally, we come to the how in verses 20 to 23. How should we contend for our faith? What does that look like? Well, firstly, in verse 20, we should build ourselves up in our most holy faith. So how do we do that? What we don't do is treat our faith like some kind of fragile vase and keep it locked up and guarded for its own safety. See, our faith is not kept safe by keeping it private and personal and out of harm's way. We don't grow by allowing our faith to be mollycoddled and wrapped in cotton wool. No, when the Bible urges us to defend the faith, as, for example, Paul does while writing to Timothy in his first letter, it means it to expose it to the rough and tumble of public debate and and scrutiny, to publicly and openly declare our faith and to speak up for the clear gospel is the best way to defend it. You see, every time I go to one of these Anglican training sessions, you know I love so much, I always sit next to a friend and I always say to her, I say, don't let me say anything. Don't let me say anything at all. Because I always get into trouble. But every time, every time, I, I, I just can't resist it. I have to say something. Somebody says something like, some Christians are so black and white. Or my personal favourite, as Anglicans, we don't believe in wrath. Or the last one I heard was, uh, who would ever preach about judgment? And I just can't resist it. It just pops out of my mouth without thinking. I, I said, I would, I'd preach that. I just get into trouble all the time. I remember my old principal at Theological College, another man who used to get in trouble all the time as well. And he used to say he was on general synod and all sorts of important uh, committees within the Anglican Church. And whenever anybody tried to justify church decline by saying the immortal phrase, well, of course, numbers don't matter, do they? Numbers don't matter. He vowed that he would always, always contest that phrase. He would also say that numbers do matter. Numbers do matter. 
in our churches. Why? Because hopefully the more people who are coming to church are the more people who are saved, the more people converted, the more people who have eternal life. And that does matter, doesn't it? But we get ourselves in trouble. You see, we must be prepared to defend our faith in the rough and the tumble of the modern world. We don't defend it effectively by keeping it, just, just simply distilling our faith in some kind of summary statement, like a doctrinal basis, commit it to paper, and then you know, defend it against criticism if anybody comes along. Now, doctrinal bases are very useful, and I, I'm a, especially for mission agencies and, and uh, Christian charities. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of the UCCF doctrinal basis, you know, that many of you have probably signed in the past. I signed about 25 years ago, and I still refer to it now in cases of doubt. But it's just a summary at the end of the day. I mean, as we come here, as we, or as we read the Bible at home, or we hear it here in church... We, we realize that a doctrinal basis can only just be a rough summary, a, a fair summary of, of our faith. It can never represent the full comprehensiveness and interrelatedness of, of the scriptural story that we read in, in Scripture. You see, Jude wants us to be built up by seeing the whole of our lives, our intellects, our actions, our consciences, our motives, and our imaginations brought increasingly into conformity with God's marvellous and holy word. It's a lifelong activity being built up in the faith. Literally, Jude tells us to keep on building up ourselves in the faith. So quiet times are not something that we try out as a student, struggle with when we begin the routine of work, give up when we have young children and then feel guilty about for the rest of our lives. Quiet times were not something invented for the 1980s and passé now for the noughties. We're not more grown up and mature if you think Bible study and prayer because it becomes hard sometimes that, well, we don't really need to bother. Yes, they are hard. And no, there is no kind of magic about it. I mean, you know, we won't have better lives just because we're doing quiet times necessarily. And we don't have to be legalistic about it. But reading your Bible and praying each day is going to be so helpful to building yourselves up in your faith. You really can't do without those quiet times if we're going to be serious about our faith. But notice also that building ourselves up is not just an individual activity. Jude tells his reader to build yourselves up. He's writing to the church community and the word is plural. This is no individual spiritual quest like some Dan Brown novel. It's something that we do together. That's why Paul says that we should never meet, uh, give up meeting together. We should make every effort to come every week to at least one of the services on a Sunday. Now, I know that some of you have strange shift patterns, but many of you still make an effort to, to come, and that's great. I mean, after all, that's why we have an evening service, so that the servants of the, uh, the people who live in the big houses on Newmarket Road and Untank Road you know, can come along here in the evening. So welcome, servants. So we shouldn't just pop in every two or three weeks if we're serious about building up our faith. We need to worship together. We need to read the Bible together. And here it's explained. And we need to pray together. Not just corporately, but afterwards with the prayer team or with friends. And if we can join a midweek group, as people have been saying tonight, then all the better. You see, often the first sign that a Christian is in, is in trouble and danger of falling away is that they become a loner cutting themselves off from Christian fellowship. And it takes a long time before any of us realise that we haven't seen so-and-so for a long time. 
And by that time, it can be quite late, too late. And it can happen to Christian leaders as well. I mean, we, we have to come to services. We get paid to come to services, and you'll be asking questions if we didn't turn up, wouldn't you? But we also need to be pastored effectively. You know, we, 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 we need to be pastored by you sometimes. And thankfully you do, to me. Thank you. But we also need spiritual accountability outside of the congregations as well. So I meet, I meet every six months with uh, three friends of mine from college. And we pray together and we support one another and we encourage each other and we talk about things and how things are going. And we've also got this big long list of questions about our spiritual life and personal holiness. And it gets really scary. But we need it. We need to build ourselves up together in the most holy faith. Secondly, verse 20. We should pray in the Spirit. So what does Jude mean here? Well, many of us here uh, pray in tongues, either publicly or privately, as described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Is that what Jude means by praying in the Spirit? Well, I'm not sure that any first century Palestinian uh, reader would have made that connection, unless it happened to have been in Corinth at the time that Paul's first letter was read out there. But if we stick to Jew for a moment, then we see that this is the second time that the Spirit is mentioned. The first is in verse 19, where Jude says that the false Christians do not have the Spirit. And now, in verse 20, the genuine Christians are being urged to pray in the Spirit. And I think perhaps Jude is just telling us to pray. See, anyone who is converted has the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the promised a perfect counsellor, the seal of eternal life. And we should pray in our new Holy Spirit. So I wonder what we should pray in the context of the letter. We should pray for ourselves and one another that we do not deviate from the faith. For new Christians, we should pray that they put down good and healthy roots. For our teachers and leaders, that, they're not, that they won't be led into error and therefore lead any of us into error. And for those who have already fallen into error, that they may return and be converted. Thirdly, in verse 21, we should keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. So notice, as we said before, that we are already loved by God. But here we must keep ourselves in God's love. You see, on the one hand, we pray with Paul in Ephesians 3 that you may grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And on the other hand, we remember that Jesus warned us in John 15 to remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. You see, as Christians, we are both gripped by the undeserved love of God and compelled by our thankfulness to him to remain in his love by obeying his commandments. In verses 5, 6, and 7, they give us examples of the judgment that face us if we do not. In contrast, as Christians, we have already entered eternal life. But as, as, the, as we were singing earlier on, some of the songs are so appropriate tonight. Uh, as we, uh, what we experience as a Christian is often a battle, isn't it? It's a battle because we're still waiting for our new resurrection bodies. In Romans 8, Paul writes that Christians groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But meanwhile, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express as we wait patiently for our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. 
And lastly, verse 22. We should be merciful to those who doubt. We should snatch others from the fire and save them. Now, we're running out of time. There's not enough time to go into all of this. But I hope we shall never be a church where people are not allowed to doubt or to ask questions about the faith. You see, we're told here clearly that we must have mercy on such people. On the other hand, I hope that where others are being drawn into immoral behaviour, because they've been told that such things are actually okay for Christians, then if they're being taught, in other words, that license, uh, about license rather than liberty, then I hope that we will pray and we'll speak to them in such a way without being offensive or insensitive, but we'll seek to save them from the fire that is approaching. Jude says, snatch them away from that. And if, all, and if people are already in the thick of sin, verse 23, you see, we should sow mercy mixed with fear, he says, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. In other words, it's the old adage, isn't it? Love the sinner, but hate the sin. You see, all this is we do because Christians, we are called, we are loved by God, and we are kept by Jesus Christ. What Jude is saying here is that is the most, most important thing. But those who try to lead us astray are condemned. They're without God and they deny Jesus Christ and the salvation that we should share. So as we approach Jude, we should be feeling a mixture of awe, of love for Christ, of relief for ourselves and our own salvation, but also a concern a love and a mercy for those who are potentially condemned, godless, and without Christ. So I just want to end our sermon now by reading together verses 24 and 25, which are probably the most popular and well-known verses of this little book. So perhaps we can stand to read these verses to each other and use them as a prayer to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. So let's say together verses from verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without faults and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Thank you very much.